On this very special episode of Pod of Madness, I co-host the show with my favorite blue monster, Van, from the Austin Public Library's The Van Show. We interview Austin-based filmmakers and writers Owen Edgerton and C. Robert Cargill. I met them about seven years ago when I wrote for the now-defunct but still much-beloved movie blog called Slackerwood. Our reunion episode is filled with the trappings of a successful horror sequel. There's a well-developed cast, We've raised the stakes with Van, the puppet, and we didn't mess with the original. Listen for yourself. If you dare. Uh, Okay, okay. I had to say it. Thanks, guys, for being on uh, my wacky, harebrained uh, video podcast, whatever this might be. Um, I started Pot of Madness a few months ago as a way to sort of uh, shake things up in terms of uh, accessibility to, to horror and you know as a woman who loves horror I've had uh, some interesting experiences of not finding too many women involved in the genre I could definitely be wrong but that's one of my first questions and I've talked to Owen before Cargill um, and we talked a little bit about this too with my harebrained idea for a Deborah Hill documentary but that's a whole other side story but wanted to talk about since y'all are both in the genre both uh, in text and in film a little bit about your experiences working with women in the genre and if you want to name drop for me and everyone else to hear of some great women filmmakers in horror or writers in horror I'd love to start the conversation out that way I'll jump in right now with just two of my favorite. I mean, th- these are my two of my favorite uh, people working in film right now in, in, in genre overall, but but they are, they happen to be women as well. But uh, Issa Lopez, who is the writer-director of Tigers Are Not Afraid, uh, is, is brilliant. She's actually a brilliant writer, uh, novelist, and, and a filmmaker, and had kind of moved into genre. I don't know if she knew she was doing such kick-ass genre, but Tigers Are Not Afraid is is brilliant and she's fabulous and just sort of a, a powerhouse of her personality uh i love her uh, and then jennifer kent is another one uh i think you know babadook is maybe her most famous work but i just am so impressed with what she brings to a film she she terrifies me uh those would be two that that i think of uh and then of course there's all these people who are not necessarily the writers or the directors but who are doing incredible stuff too i i end up working with with a lot of uh uh, writers and I mean or people in my production like Eliane Fenton has been my cinematographer for two of my movies and I just love her eye she's just a great she's got a great eye for things that are spooky <laughs> the thing with uh, women in genre is there are so many of them and the problem is they just don't get enough ink and attention and yeah. that's really where we are right now like uh, you know uh, Owen mentioned Issa who's just a wonderful human and is so freaking talented but, you know, clawed her way up from uh, tele um, yeah. Like, she she was writing soap operas 20 years ago, and and now she's finally gotten the recognition she deserves. But there's so many other women that I'm going to na- I'm, I'm, I'm gonna leave so many out. But, like, Gigi Guerrero and uh, uh, Jen Wexler, uh, the Soska sisters, the oh, yeah. um, uh, uh, Axel Carolyn, um, uh, and and uh, Zelda Williams. Uh, there's so many women working today that we're just not paying enough attention to and who are struggling. Because, you know, the, the issue with genre is you are either very successful um, or you, if you, there are two tracks from if you're not hyper successful. If, you, if you're uh, a white guy 
and you're not so successful, you can typically keep working in the space and your various friends can help keeping you keep getting you work. Uh, but if you're a person of color or a woman, you often end up being forced towards the television track uh, where it's very hard to break through. Um, and once you kind of get put on that track, you can get work, but your name isn't getting out there in the same way. And so it's very, there's very much a struggle in the community right now to shine a light on all of these incredible women uh, who are just not getting the, the work that they deserve. Uh, and Issa is one of the rare examples where she's, you know, finally, P Tigers Are Not Afraid was so good that the studios couldn't ignore her. And as a result, she's got a couple of different movie uh, projects going on the same way as a number of her white male compatriots have going on. But so many of the other women are struggling just to get noticed. Um, and, uh, and it's really a thing that we have to change. This has always been the case. I mean, Cargill makes a really good point. Like, uh, at some point there was sort of like, oh gosh, I guess, you know, I wish there were more women doing this. Now, there's always been women doing this. And, uh, and as Cargill said, like, they just haven't had the spotlight or the ink spent on them. But, but it's even like, the, the elements that the, we're still seeing it. I mean, the fact that we every year have how many Frankenstein movies based on an, a, a teenage woman's uh, novel, debut novel, is, is reminiscent. Like, that's evidence. Or how about Shirley Jackson? You know, how about, like, you know, Mike, Mike Flavin did, is, is an amazing filmmaker, but, you know, Shirley Jackson gave us these stories that we're still retelling and everything like that. We, there's always been these uh, women doing incredible things and telling terrifying stories. Um, we just haven't given them enough attention in, this, in the spotlight. And hey, if y'all have a list of names of people that you think I should interview or that you want to get out there, please send me over those names too that I am always looking and I would love to be able to, to lend a hand where I can with, with women filmmakers and, and writers. So, so yes. And speaking of, of putting in uh, connections, I suppose, that Cargill, something randomly, I just have to acknowledge that your assistant, Will Goss, I am pretty certain I'm related to him. <laughs> I am really, really close. So my last name is Gosspore, but I spell it G-A-S-S. -S, and he spells it G-O-S-S, but we have a branch of the family that didn't want to be called Gas at some point. So they changed the spelling. But I, we're all from South Central Texas. So I'm pretty certain. I'm going to find... Yeah. <laughs> you're going to find that missing link between you and my assistant? Yes, yes. That's my, my, my next thing on my list of things to do. But anyway, I thought I just would uh, shout that out. Um, but I don't want to leave the puppet there alone. He looks very sad and lonely. Uh, one of the conversations that I was hoping to have, uh, I'm sure y'all are very familiar with the Puppet Master franchise, oh, right? Yeah. Yes. Okay, so did y'all see the latest in the installment that Fangoria did in 2018? The Littlest the Reich? The Little Reich? Yeah, The Littlest Reich, yeah. Have y'all saw that? Yeah, it was playing. It was playing at a number of different festivals. I had a film playing at a lot of the same festivals. So yeah, it, it made me angry. Um, and I just wanted just to kind of walk things through too. Well, one, getting your thoughts on why puppets seem to be a figure of a lot of horror movies, even outside of the Puppet Master franchise. Because one of the things that has terrified me since I was a child is any sort of doll puppet, ventriloquist dummy that comes to life. But Getting your thoughts on, on why puppets, for instance, have, uh, have sort of a bad rap in horror, and we can also have the puppet get involved in this conversation, too. Yeah, I might have a few thoughts on that, but uh, I'll let you guys go first. 
I, uh, you know, it goes back. It goes back to folk tales. It goes back to the story of the homunculus, and it goes back to the 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 classic Jewish tale of the golem. That we create these things that are in our image, and invariably they get out of our control and have some malevolence to them in some way, shape, or form. Uh, and there's there's there there are um, you know stories of it going back thousands of years. Uh, one of my favorites comes from uh, the the Aboriginal Australians. Uh, where they uh, they have a thing about putting together a kind of golem-like creature made of dead wood and uh, and mud uh, that then kind of loses control, and we just it's something that has always been kind of programmed into us to fear our own images or images that are somehow off like us, and uh, and it it's just it's rooted in that folk kind of uh, tale. Like we all have that. Uh, I have a story in which uh, me and Jess actually moved into our house two years ago and someone made uh, a couple years back made a Cargill puppet and uh, so I have a puppet of my own uh, and uh, uh, and it was in my office and I was like well you know I'm driving some stuff over to the house across town I'll just take the puppet over brought it in put it on the floor in my office and Jess did not know this happened and came in a few hours later and sees this thing like with it like its head back because I have it on the, the stand and, it's, and yeah as our puppet is doing and she sees it she screams she goes to run out of the house and then in her her head puts it all together and it's like that's Cargill's puppet it's totally okay it's okay it's okay she goes and peeks in and she's like oh damn it <laughs> uh, I I think it's also like it it also has to do well, it's a little bit like clowns are scary too it's it's the uncanny valley right you've heard of the uncanny valley where it's like it's like something almost looks like human but something's off and anything some anytime something is off it becomes uncanny it's close to reality but everything's slightly off uh, and there's some there's some people who study this who say the reason we have this primitive fear of that is actually a fear of sickness that we would see someone in our own tribe our own community and we could tell oh there's something off about them I don't know what but there's something off they're sick. My instinct is saying they're sick, and if I get near them, I'll be sick. And so we step away from that. I don't know if it's exactly true. I think it's more that we are kind of scared of ourselves if we see ourselves as other, you know, other with a capital O, uh, in which every one of us is in some way other. Uh, and so I think, you know, puppets and dolls kind of fall into that. Also, they're meant to be objects of innocence, like a doll, a puppet. I mean, look at this cute little blue guy. They're, they're objects of innocence. And, and any time an object of innocence becomes an object of violence, it's, it's all the more terrifying because we expect a gun to kill us. We expect a mean-looking fella to attack us. But when it's a cute little doll or a harmless toy or a child, that, that becomes even more terrifying. Yeah, and I'm glad you said that because I was actually thinking that I think humans are inherently afraid of their own children. And I think that's really where the, the puppet thing comes from, is that like humans create the puppets, and then the puppets go out of control, and then they can't control them, just like humans make little humans, and then eventually they can't control those little humans anymore because they become their own big humans. I think, it's, I think that's really where this, this kind of inherent fear of puppetry comes from. It's, not, it's nothing to do with us. We didn't do it. It's y'all's fault. Oh, Wow. Well, insightful. I do fear my children. I do fear, yeah. <laughs> See, Most people smart. fear. If I fear you meet children my children, well. you'd be terrified too. Cargill's met them. <laughs> They're scary. 
Oh my goodness. Uh, well, I had said, you know, too, that puppets or doll movies like Chucky, Child's Play, that whole franchise terrifies me to this day that I keep saying that I want to do an episode where I can actually meet one of the dolls on the set of, because they're doing a TV series uh, sometime soon for Child's Play, to confront my fear face to face with the doll. But I'm curious in what movie disquieted you, terrified you as a child that maybe there's still some lingering fears into adulthood that you may have? I mean, I think I'm, I think Owen and I are going to have the same answer because we're roughly the same age. Poltergeist messed us all up as kids. Like, it was rated PG, so they could play that in the daytime, and they did. And that messed, like... You, you, you've got a whole litany of things in there. You got scary trees, you got scary clowns, you got ghosts, you got a guy peeling his own face off. Like, that is a heavy, heavy trip to lay on a seven-year-old kid. Yeah, Poltergeist is super... Totally. I saw that in the theater, and I was with a friend, and I remember thinking, oh, no, oh, no, I shouldn't be here. I shouldn't be here. I also... I watched, like... Cargill might be the same experience for him, too. Like, what? Sometimes people think, like, oh, you write horror movies, you make those movies, so you're not scared of them. I'm like, no, I'm terrified of them, which is why I love them. You know, I, I was just watching Hereditary last night. I'm still scared of that movie. I've seen it a bunch of times. I, I get scared, and I, I move, and I flinch, and I scream during movies. If I'm sitting next to somebody, I grab them, whether <laughs> I know them or not. Uh, it's it's gotten me asked to leave from several different theaters. Uh, I, I, I So everything. And I used to stay up late and watch the black and white films, you know, Vincent Price and The Fly. Or I remember very clearly watching uh, Night of the Living Dead the first time, like late at night because it was playing on TV. And I was like, oh, oh my God, when the little girl stabs her mother with the, the gardening oh geez it's just too much uh and and so i i'm a sucker i'm a sucker for all those things and they, they all stuck with me yeah i would i would also add in there um i was at a sleepover when i was 10 years old and uh we were changing channel and eight on hbo was playing a nightmare on elm street and it was the scene in which johnny depp is on his bed and that moment as a 10 year old kid is forever burned in my brain. Like that is, that just messed me up. I could not sleep for weeks. I was crying. I called my mother. I had to go home. Like it was <laughs> oh. bad. <laughs> you had to go home. That is... I had to go home, man. That, I mean, imagine being 10 years old and Freddie's hand comes out of the mattress. You're not even safe in, on your own mattress in your own bed, pulls him in and this gusher of blood just shoots. It's just, oh, oh, so it was good. just too much when I was a kid. And it was Johnny Depp, too. You're like, oh, goodness, great. And, you know, Jordan, maybe this is it, too. Like, you were talking about, like, why, why are little dolls scary? Why are puppets scary to us? But, like, w horror has done a really great job, especially, like, in the 70s and 80s. But they would basically, like, take anything that was called safe, anything that the world was telling children, this is safe, and, and just, like, Americans had been learning, like, oh, we, we can't really trust our government. Uh, look at Vietnam. We can't trust it. You know, there's no good war. All these different things. We were starting to become cynical. We just sort of started dismantling through horror movies every safe zone. So, like, suburbia with white picket fences. That's not safe. That's where Michael Myers comes from, and that's where he's coming back to. Summer camp. Summer camp's safe. Like, oh, no, it's not. No, it's not. Jason's mom is hanging out, and there's a kid in the lake. Spoiler like, alert. Our, our dreams, our dreams are safe. You know, we can have... No, we can't. Those aren't safe either. Like, all the safe zones, even Johnny Depp's bed, and there's no safe zone. But so, like, speaking to that, 
how, where, how does Hellraiser fit in? Because, like, Hellraiser took something that's already terrifying and made it way more terrifying. Like, there's nothing innocent about hell, and yet, like, somehow that, that movie made it way more scary than any church ever, like, made it to me. Well, that's the, the interesting thing about Hellraiser, why Hellraiser functionally works, is Hellraiser's entirely about transgression. And it's, it's all about transgressing and then earning yourself damnation. But why those movies work is that the um, uh, people who are cur- simply curious end up being considered to have transgressed. Uh, and so it's the idea that your curiosity could get you killed by these beings that will hunt you through eternity and torment you forever just because you were curious is scary. Uh, there you go. Yep, yep, yep. You know, as as a kid, um, the movie that really terrified me, and I think this is more circumstantial, um, I, I don't remember. It was either Troll 1 or Troll 2. I don't remember which of the two. It's but very one different because films. Troll very 2 different. isn't scary. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, it was, it, was, it was the little door it, it, that, that terrified Troll me one. because yeah. my grandma had a little door in her basement. And so every, like after I saw that movie, I was terrified to go to my grandma's house because of that little door in the basement. Right. Yeah. Yeah, there, was a, there was a similar movie that kind of messed with me as a kid that had Drew Barrymore in it called Cat's Eye, where there's this little troll that actually breaks open the wall, goes through, and then the wall heals up. Yeah. And it's like, ooh. I love yeah. it. How I've sort of worked through my fear of especially the child's play movies as an adult is like, oh, it's a metaphor on capitalism. Like, if I'm going to watch, you know, it's like, oh, some hot, more highfalutin idea that maybe they did mean or maybe they didn't mean. But, like, that's what it's about. It's not just the terrifying doll that uh, that will come and kill you and who is just really, really mean. But I wanted to go back to Hellraiser real quick uh, just to... To shout out that um, I actually was not afraid during Hellraiser, and it's weirdly enough I sympathized with Pinhead a lot, which is why oh. I wasn't afraid of that movie. I'm just like, yeah, if, if I'm Go alone on. in in sympathizing with with Pinhead, um, I I felt really bad for Pinhead. I, I, don't, do we... I don't. I mean, by the end of uh, of Hellraiser two, you're supposed yeah. to sympathize with them. The death of the the Cenobites is actually showing, you know, their origins. Uh, so yeah, no. There's nothing wrong with sympathizing with them. It's it's interesting that um, the the concept of the Cenobites themselves is scary from the outside, but when you kind of look at it cosmically and the role they play, they they're just dutifully doing what they think you want them to do, and that's the thing is they think you want to experience the craziest stuff the universe has to offer, and you asked for it, so now we've got to give it to you because there is no safe word in hell. Um, and, and so ultimately they're not bad dudes, but, um, uh, I, I still argue that they're bad enough dudes that I, I, my biggest problem, honestly, with Hellraiser is that hell is sexist, uh, because every Cenobite gets a name except female Cenobite. Even in hell, even in hell, even in hell, you know, you're making 77 cents on the dollar. (laughs) But I think we uh, have a new tagline for the next Hellraiser movie about there not being a safe word in hell. (laughs) (laughs) There's no safe word in hell. (laughs) I would watch that. Oh, my goodness. Uh, Oh, man. But I wanted just to take a step back real quick. So for for folks that don't know that the two of you, uh, Owen and Cargill, that you actually know each other and that you both live in Austin. Well, the three of you, I'm the odd one out. But how did y'all meet? I don't even know exactly how... Y'all met. I don't even know. 
I don't even know how either. I don't think either of us can remember the first time we ran across each other. We were just, we both came up at the exact same time. He had, was a member of Master Pancake. Uh, and it, you know, at the early draft house, I was one of the early draft house regulars, uh, who was a member of Ain't It Cool News. Uh, I was always at events. He was always at events and we just kept running into each other until we finally learned each other's names. Um, yeah. and, and then we both went on very similar paths as screenwriters and novelists. Uh, in fact, we, we joked about it. I think, I think the ship has sailed on this. I think we're a little too old, but for years we talked about doing a fantastic debates where we argued who is the best screenwriter and novelist in Austin, where I would argue that it's Owen and Owen would argue that it was me and then we would box it out. Um, and, uh, but I, I think, I, I think that time has passed. It'll be like a, like a Rocky five. We'll do it in an alleyway sort of thing. <laughs> Rocky five wasn't one of the good ones though. Well, that's true. <laughs> All right. So origin story, the, the first day that y'all met sort of unknown. All right. But you've known each unknown. other for a long time. Oh, we're, yeah. we're talking about like, we're talking like two decades. So it's like, wow. Okay. Which party we met at, which screening we met at. Like we were literally like, you know, both part of the very early Austin Draft House scene. Like a lot of people don't realize the Austin film scene, a lot of it came together because of the Draft House. And um they the Draft House started as a purely repertory theater. Uh so, you know, they would only be showing stuff either in its second run or showing older movies. And so all of the film geeks would come out and go here. And um, I, I mean, this is so long ago that you could still smoke in the lobby. And so we would be standing in the, in the lobby smoking cigarettes. And we, you, you, it was, you know, uh, you're all just packed in there. So everybody would get to know everybody. And it's like, who's that loud guy? Oh, that's Cargill. Um, you just have to tune him out. Um, and, and who's uh, that short guy? Oh, that's Owen. That's no, Owen. Kind of, yeah. Um, but yeah, so I mean, this is, this is, we've known each other so long and then just both ended up, you know, working at Blumhouse and both ended up writing books and we keep ending up at things. And then of course we had become good friends and then people keep going, Hey, we're having an event uh, and we want Austin filmmakers. Can we have you and Owen? And it's like, yeah, sure. We, we can. It, does, it does happen a lot. But it was it was a really cool time of like I mean as as like Cargo was saying that that old Alamo which was you know just one screen you know a lot of times the movies cost one dollar uh, and 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 then you'd also get like Quentin Tarantino kind of loved the place and and he would be filming in town and he'd be like I just gotta I gotta bring everybody inside to see this random movie from 1970 uh, that I just love and 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 put it on the screen and then also you know he would do these like all night long things sometimes. And it was just like a lot of geeks, you know, getting together uh, and and just sort of enjoying each other's company and, and and sharing stuff like, oh my gosh, you haven't seen this movie? And this was a time then when there wasn't uh, Netflix. There wasn't a way to stream it. This was, this was before YouTube. So people would be like, oh, here is a VHS copy of this movie. Trolls 2, for example. Like, you're going to see Trolls 2 now because I'm handing you a copy of it uh, was, that I stole from Vulcan Video. <laughs> that, you know, it's, it, it's interesting. A lot of this community came together from a thing called Weird Wednesday that was very different then because what originally happened was Tim League had bought 200 different movies from a, a closed drive-in and he didn't know 
what shape they were in. So every Wednesday or, night, or what have, they were. Some of them at, didn't have labels. Yeah. So at midnight every Wednesday night, they had a free showing, but there was no promises if it was any good. And so we would just show up on Wednesday nights to watch whatever. And sometimes it would be something really cool. Sometimes it would be something goofy like Super Fuzz. And then sometimes it would be an unwatchable comedy like Can I Do It Until I Have to Wear Glasses that's only notable because it's the first appearance of Robin Williams on film. Like oh. it, like it's <laughs> like you would just see weird stuff like that. And then sometimes you'd walk out groaning with the rest of the audience going, that was terrible. But then you talk about it for 20 minutes outside. Uh, and then sometimes you would really see these amazing gems that you'd have to run out and tell your friends, oh my God, you have to find this thing. And, and that's really kind of the genesis of where a lot of the Austin film community of this generation got to know each other. All right. I just got a, a pop-up message telling me about my free Zoom account that we have 10 minutes left because this is what happens when you're a journalist and you don't pay for the premium account. <laughs> but um, Bob. Um, but I did want to, to also discuss, because you talk about the interconnectedness of Austin, and I know that uh, Cargo, for instance, that you have a project in the works that was announced, I think a few months ago, correct, with Elijah Wood, who also has a residence in Austin. And I feel like everybody has met him at some point, and he is the nicest celebrity I have ever had the pleasure of interviewing, was super nice. But wanted to, to throw it at you. If you wanted to talk a little bit about that project that you have with him, I, I just know Ted Bundy, FBI agent. The floor is yours. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, no, um, uh, Elijah is uh, uh, super down to earth and a hardcore film nerd. And so he's been coming to a lot of the Draft House events for years as well. Um, and, uh, and so like most of the film community knows him by, on a first name basis. Uh, and he knows them because he is one of the nicest guys. Yeah, um, this is a it's a weird little film uh, that I'm really proud of. Uh, uh, we'll see. Uh, we just wrapped shooting. We're going to see how it comes out in the edit because you never know. Uh, but uh, uh, it's essentially the true story of an FBI agent named Bill Hagmeyer who became Ted Bundy's best friend. And um, and in the la and and a large port half of the movie is about how they got to know each other and how that relationship developed over the course of years, and then the other half is about the last seven days of Ted Bundy's life and all the the weird things that he tried to do to wiggle out of the electric chair. And in the course of that last week, Bundy admitted everything to Bill, and like he just laid it all out, like how he did it and what he did. And um, the thing is, is there have been a lot of movies and a lot of media made about Ted Bundy. And one of the things that bugged me a lot was that it's all kind of selling the myth of Ted Bundy and kind of glorifying him in a certain way. And the deeper you dig into the story, you realize there's nothing to mystify here. There's nothing amazing about him. In fact, I honestly believe that if Ted Bundy were born, you know, uh, in the 70s and were a serial killer today, he would have been caught after his first or second attempt. Uh, he wasn't that good. He was very good for the 1970s when states didn't talk to each other, police departments didn't talk to each other, and the FBI hadn't taken over coordinating those. Um, and that he was a very sad and angry guy behind the scenes. And I wanted to deconstruct the monster and write a piece about, um, like that you got to the end where, where, you know, a lot of people have gone in reading the script going, why do, does anyone want to make another Ted Bundy movie? And then they get to the end of the script and they go, oh, 
well, I never need to see another Ted Bundy movie, but this is the one that I needed to see. And so uh, that's the hope of what we'll, we'll accomplish is that we deconstruct that myth and lay out. And it's done almost entirely based upon FBI transcripts and audio recordings and the recollections of Bill who is in the room with Ted. And so this isn't, uh, this isn't somebody else's recollections. This is literally the guy who is in the room laying out who Ted Bundy is. And so uh, 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 Elijah is playing um, uh, Bill. I don't think we're allowed to talk about who played Ted, but I'm really excited. Uh, it's, it's, a very, it's a very exciting choice that when people see it, they're going to be kind of floored by how much the performance feels authentic. So hmm. uh, I'm, very, I'm very excited to see how this comes out. Yeah, no, that's awesome. And, and Owen, that you have Mercy Black that's on Netflix. And what else do you have going on in the works? Uh, Anything I, in between I, our last conversation? <laughs> there, there's, yes, but I'm not allowed to talk about of it. Course, of course, <laughs> so, not. of course, of course. Well, when you are allowed to talk about it, let me know. But yeah. I will, I will. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, and Cargill, I was telling Van, our lovely puppet over there too, that um, you should just whisper in Elijah Wood's ear that he should do a story time for children at the Austin Public Library. Um, I think it would be a very nice, sweet, sweet thing. Uh, I will mention it to him. I, I, I saw that he put his house up for sale recently, so he may... He just had a kid and, yes. you know, he's in L.A. And so he may just be like, you know what? I think I'm just going to do the L.A. thing now, which would make me sad. But um, we'll see. But I know we'll his see. brother still lives here, so he'll still be visiting. So I will put that bug in his ear. Yeah. And if he, if he ever wants to come on the van show and talk to me, um, I'm more than happy to. I, I interview mostly authors and uh, illustrators, but I'd be more than happy to talk to an actor. Oh, no, no, no. Elijah does not talk to puppets. What? No. No he's a he's a speciesist. He's a puppetist. Yes. He's a puppetist. Yeah. Oh my, oh my goodness. goodness. Well, I do. So that's I, a real shame. <laughs> I have really... five minutes we'll left. See. Oh. Before before the zoom the zoom will kick every everyone off. So I just wanted to have uh, my closing remarks just as a thanks to y'all. Um, and my my last final question to each of you is that if you could be any horror movie villain, who would it be? I'm gonna be I'm gonna be Pinhead. Because I said I sympathize with Pinhead. Jeez. If I had you, to be a horror movie villain, that's movie really... Villain. Um, I would pick the, the black slime from Creepshow. Because it wins in the end. It does. It does. I guess I'm going to go... <sighs> I'm going to go with Larry Talbot, uh, the, the Wolfman, because uh, he's so tortured the whole time. And it's just, I don't want to kill people, but I keep killing people. Um, I, I, you know, I can relate to that. Sympathetic. Yeah. 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 You know what? I'm going to I'm going to take an oddball choice. I'm going to go with Julian Sands Warlock. <laughs> oh, that that is a stretch. Yeah. But there you go. There you go. I mean, first of all, you get to look like Julian Sands because that is a beautiful, beautiful man. But also the warlock. The warlock was a pretty cool villain, and I'm surprised those movies have not um, stayed in the consciousness. Yeah, but the, how many? Maybe are in time the for series? a reboot. There, I know there's at least two. I think they may have continued without Julian Sands, but I'm not 100 percent sure. Yeah, I, I thought... just recently realized there were four pumpkin heads. Oh yeah, 
Yeah. Well, I think kind of. I think two and three count as video. I think they were video games and are counted in the series, but I don't know. I, I read that too, but it turns out I think they went straight to TV, and then they also had video games, but they were actually movies. Oh, okay. Yeah. I kind of just did a dive in it recently. Was it, wasn't, uh, was it Christopher Lambert? Wasn't he the warlock? Am I totally off base? Am I... No, no, no. The, no uh, Julian Sands was the warlock. Oh um, and then the guy who fought the warlock is still around. He's from Withnail and I, um, and uh, really popular on Twitter, and I'm blanking out his name all of a sudden. Um, well, y'all two have connections with Blumhouse, so I think uh, a remake. Y'all should be talking about writing a script for a remake to Warlock. <laughs> Let's do it. There you go. All right. Well, thank y'all very much. Um, and yeah, we got two minutes. So I just want to say uh, as well to be able to send me those recordings via email whenever you get the chance to. Um, and I can start putting this all together. Great. Awesome. Cool. Send over tricks and treats to jordan at podofmadness.com. You can also find the show on Twitter and Instagram at Pod of Madness. A big thanks to Owen Edgerton, C. Robert Cargill, and puppeteer Gabriel Ransenberg for being on the show. If you want to see Van, the puppet, live and in color, watch the video on podofmadness.com. Now, did you think you were going to walk away from a very special episode without a PSA? Do you like Jason and Michael? And wear a mask. Thanks for listening, and creep it real. You shouldn't believe in uh, everything you see in the movie.